so thrilled to share with you this interview with my dear friend and colleague, the Reverend John Omer. Thank you so much, John, for being with me and taking the time to have this conversation about forgiveness. I met John actually when I was 16 and we were working together on the staff of the center aisle at the national um, general convention for the Episcopal church. And our paths have continued to um, weave together and apart at various points in time. Um, and most recently, I was so thrilled to have John just down the street at the Falls Church Episcopal in, um, in Falls Church and to spend time with him once again as a colleague. But since then, John has relocated and he's gonna tell us a little bit about his current context. Hey Beth, so great to be with you. So great to be catching up with you again. And yes, those, what of, one, of, one, of, one of the uh, best uh, things about my time in Falls Church is when you accepted that call to St. Michael's and you knew that we would be uh, close colleagues again. And people like you going into ministry are such a gift to the Episcopal Church. Um, uh, when people, people, when you got ordained and I said, congratulations, not to you, but to the Episcopal Church. Congratulations, Episcopal oh, Church. Thanks. And congratulations, um, St. Michael's for, for um, landing you. And for that matter, Arlington. <laughs> tell, us, um, tell us a little bit about where you are now and the context in which you serve. So in um, late summer of 2019, um, sensing that the work that I had come to the Falls Church Episcopal uh, was nearing its completion, um, namely um, helping that wonderful group of continuing Episcopalians grow back into their space, um, and sensing that it was time for maybe a, 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 to hand the baton off to a, a different leader there, um, I started having an open mind about um, what might be next. And uh, an opportunity came along, which was to be the interim dean at All Souls Cathedral in Asheville, which is Western North Carolina. Our daughter went to Appalachian State in Boone, which is about an hour from Asheville. So my wife and I were somewhat familiar with Western North Carolina. I also happen to know the Bishop of Western North Carolina, Jose McLaughlin, um, from way back when. Um, we go way back to uh, St. James Leesburg and stayed in touch as clergy colleagues. And so 
when this interim uh, position came up, um, he encouraged me to uh, apply for it. And so we came here and we moved to Asheville in November of 2019 and had um, a wonderful couple of months of normal ministry <laughs> before COVID <laughs> and then COVID. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, John, for being here. And um, I'm, I'm just going to jump right in to our topic. Please is forgiveness today. And I'm going to put just before you a, a very small question, um, which you can choose to tackle in whatever way you would like. Mm. Um, how does the need to forgive and be forgiven play a role in your life and ministry? How does the need to, how does the need to forgive and be forgiven yeah. play a role in my life and in my ministry? Yeah, like I said, small question. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can take it from whatever angle you prefer. <laughs> so one of the best things, one of the best analogies I ever heard about forgiveness is, uh, is a visual, which is you take a wooden match, a strike anywhere match or, you know, strike on box match, but one of those nice big, you know, wooden matches. And um, you, you, you light it. And you say, um, this, this, picture this. And so the, so the flame goes whoosh, you know, that initial burst. And say, um, when, when you're wronged, when someone has wronged you, and you get angry, um, that anger is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it can probably protect you from more harm. So if someone's been wronged and they get angry about that, there's nothing wrong with anger. Jesus got angry kicked over the tables in the temple when he saw um, a religious place being abused. There's anger, anger is good. And, and I think um, the opposite of love is apathy. Mm -hmm. And so anger is not the opposite of love. I think often anger is a sign of love. It means something's at stake. I'm angry about the storming of the Capitol. I'm angry about um, voter suppression. I'm angry about a lot of things. And that means I care deeply. So what I do, when, when you light that match and you talk about that initial burst of flame, it can be protective and it can be used to, you know, to switch analogy somewhat, um, better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. So that anger can be used to bring light into the world. But then what happens if you're picturing this is, you know, you've lit this match and, you're, and, and you've said everything that I've just said and people are watching you as that flame continues to burn down that match and they start getting really anxious mm. because, because as, and then if you time it just right in your little homily, you say, what happens if I hold on to the anger too long? Yeah. And they'll say, you're going to get burned. And I said, who's going to get burned? And they say, you, this, this flame has served its purpose. Mm. Um, if I hold on to it too long, I will get burned. It will, it, 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 and, and that gets the, you know, many of your, the other people you're talking to, this isn't unique to me, but, you know, um, unforgiveness is drinking poison and hoping your enemy gets sick, yeah. you know? Um, so it's the same thing, holding on to that anger. I think that that is the emotional and spiritual reason, one of the emotional and spiritual reasons to, um, to forgive, I guess, and let's let's unpack that a bit. But but one of the reasons it's not necessarily the same thing. One of the reasons to not hold on to your anger 
is that you're the one who's going to get burned, not the other person. Sure. Sure. I don't think that though, <laughs> um, that not holding on to your anger is synonymous with forgiveness. Right. So tell me more about that because that's my next question, which is, so what does it look like to actually do this? Like, how do I actually blow out that match or that flame? You know, what does that look like? Well, you know, you got to go to what Jesus says, which is, you know, if someone sins against you, not nine times, 99 times or 99 times, 90 times, you have to forgive. Right. Um, what I wonder about is just what, what, what sense does forgiveness make if, if someone has not said, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm very clear that if someone's, if, that if, that if um, you do me wrong and you say, John, I apologize, I'm sorry, I absolutely must forgive you. I have no option whatsoever. I'm obligated to forgive you. What I'm less clear about is, um, for lack of a better word, unilateral forgiveness. Um, I am clear that I, about unilateral dropping anger for the reasons I stated before, but I'm not so sure that it, makes psychological or spiritual sense to exercise unilateral forgiveness. Um, in other words, I don't necessarily think that I can forgive another person unless they have not only said, I'm sorry, but have, take the case of an abused spouse, have, have demonstrated a willingness to change their behavior. Sure. I don't, I think it cheapens forgiveness um, for um, someone to say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you're forgiven. And then, and then re-engage in the same behavior. Well, actually, I either call into question how sorry you are or, um, or some, something. So something, I think there, I think there is a, a responsibility. We absolutely have to forgive when someone expresses contrition and an intention to change their behavior. But absent those things, I think that I want to spend my energy just sort of not being angry and not worrying about whether, um, um, not worrying about um, the, the category of forgiveness in those cases. I wonder if the the example you just gave is really powerful to me about um, you know spouse who's abusing their partner. Um, I, I, I wonder if sometimes forgiveness, if it is offered, um, if forgiveness looks like removing ourselves from that toxic relationship. I mean, if it, if it can look like, not what we expect forgiveness to look like, but, but to your point for the spiritual and, and emotional well-being of the person, um, if, if forgiveness actually can look like a lot of different things. Um, well, I don't, I don't know why my mind always goes to this, but maybe it's because my mother was, uh, she was Bulgarian and, um, in the late 1930s lived in Austria and her father was in the diplomatic services from Bulgaria um, to Austria. And he declared against the Third Reich. And, and so therefore he was arrested along with my mother and her brother and they were, and they were under some version of diplomatic immunity, but, but basically um, spent the war um, um, on train cars, uh, moved around in, in Germany. Um, so, um, and then she came to the United States under the War Refugee Act of 1948. So I heard a lot of stories growing up about sort of, you know, the rise of Nazism in Austria and in Germany and what that looked like. And therefore, and my mother was, the train car had stopped for the last nine months of the war. My mother was literally liberated by Patton's Third Army. 
and so I grew up in, in a household where, um, you know, um, the American, the sort of the Eisenhower Republican um, United States um, saved the world from fascism. Um, and I also heard a lot of stories about the Marshall Plan, which um, rebuilt the economies of our enemies after the war. So for some reason, I think about that a lot as the Marshall Plan was forgiveness. The, the Marshall Plan was, we are not going to hold the fact that you tried to take over the world <laughs> um, against you. Um, we are going to, in fact, help rebuild your economy so that we take away some of the desperation that might have led to some of the things that led to this situation. However, the, the, so the Marshall Plan was absolutely the right thing to do. It was the most loving, caring, beautiful, Judeo-Christian, graceful thing to do for the world. But, but first the Nazis had to surrender. They had to lay down their arms. They, 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 they had to stop fighting. They had to stop rounding people up and putting them into concentration camps. So I think a lot of well-intentioned Christians start talking about Marshall Plans before they've, before, the, before they've stopped people from being harmed. Yeah. Like, I think there's a lot to do about like, okay, yes, we will get to the Marshall Plan, but first you really got to stop those behaviors that are, that are harming, and, and harming people. Yeah. You've got to stop, you've got to stop persecuting. Um, you, and so, yes, then we will talk about forgiveness. Then we will talk about rebuilding. But there, there first has to be a cessation of hostilities and expressions of contrition. Um, and, and then, yes, and then, and then all those things can, can fall into place. But I do think a lot of, I do think a lot of well-intentioned Christians tend to want to skip over that part and jump right to um, um, the forgiveness or the rebuilding parts. Well, and I'm really struck by what you're saying in that this is not a one-sided equation, right? This is not, um, I decide I'm ready to let go of my anger. And so I'm ready to forgive the person who has wronged me. If I, if that other person doesn't also show a willingness to engage, to stop the harm, to, to acknowledge whatever has happened, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying it, it needs to be a mutual a mutually agreed upon conversation, right? Like it's not, it can't be just from one party or the or another in order for forgiveness like you're talking about to happen. I, I, I do think that, again, drop, I do think that dropping our anger can be unilateral um, if, if it's starting to harm us. Sure. Um, there might, you might have to, again, to use that analogy, you might have to strike another match if the abuse <laughs> comes back, right? Um, but, um, I do think that I can, I can decide that I am not going to dwell on a wrong. I can decide I'm not going to, um, I mean, you know, I'm not gonna, I, I can decide that I'm not gonna let Ted Cruz or Donald Trump take up too much real estate in my head. But that doesn't mean I'm forgiving them because Ted Cruz and Donald Trump have not said, I'm really sorry for putting children in cages. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, right. Right. so, so what I want to do is work really hard to um, 
get people elected to public office who are going to have compassionate policies towards immigrants and refugees, yeah. right? And, and undo the wrongs, right? Undo the injustices, work for justice, love kindness, build a better world, keep my baptismal covenant promises. Um, but it, it, it just doesn't make any sense to say, do you forgive um, Stephen Miller who orchestrated those policies for four years? No, it doesn't make any sense. Stephen, uh, Stephen Miller hasn't said, geez, I've been a xenophobic, um, jerk for four years. If he says that, then I'll say, Stephen, I forgive you, but I don't hear that. Sure. John, you've given yourself away a little bit. Tell us about your political background that folks may not be aware. <laughs> all roads, even in Asheville, you know, you think I'd get over this. All roads lead to political analogies and all that and minor little rants against, um, um, but um, yeah, I, I, Right out of seminary, I mean, right out of college, I I, uh, I went to um, I, I work, went to work on Capitol Hill. So it was basically 1984 through 1988. I was on working on a Senate staff, and then 1988 on the presidential campaign. Went back to Indiana to work as a press secretary and a speechwriter after a very brief, um, almost a year as a kind of a lobbyist on immigration and refugee issues for a lot of the personal reasons that I've already shared here. But, um, um, and then, um, and then in 1991, I went to seminary. So yeah, so from basically uh, 84, 85 to about 91, I was in uh, government and politics. I love Sorry it. about all the sirens out the door. That's okay, those? no problem. Yeah. Uh, I love it because it's one of the, the unique perspectives you bring is, is such, um, such a beautiful clarity and way with words on our political state past or present. So I, I just wanted to name that and bring that into the conversation because that's some of the beautiful analogies you've shared. Um, I, I, I call myself a recovering political holic, but that's not actually quite right because I'm not really that recovering. I'm still pretty <laughs> much a political holic. <laughs> um, I want to ask you if you have a story you might be able to share about um, when the inability to forgive may have left a lasting impact, uh, either something you witnessed or something, something personal. Um, but when the inability to forgive has, has left a lasting impact. Um, you know, Beth, I, not to, um, this will sound like I'm trying to compliment myself, but I don't really have an inability to forgive. And it's not because I'm a nice guy or that I'm full of grace or anything. It's that I, I don't have any rear view mirrors. <laughs> I'm, I, 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 am, I, am, I am all about facing forward. And so um, almost, uh, not almost to a fault, really to a fault, but you know, two weeks ago in, in 1978, you know, are sort of <laughs> roughly sort of all back there as like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that happened. And so, um, I really, I, um, on the one hand, I'm not a very, na I'm not naturally a very nice person. I need to spend time in prayer every day, um, marinating in God's love so that I have any chance at all to love other people. Um, that's the, the downside is that I'm, you know, not naturally a very nice person. The, the upside is I, I don't hold grudges. I, I just don't, I, and so I don't, I really do rack my brain to think of a, 
and unforgiveness, um, where that I'm really just sort of seething and holding on to a past wrong. Um, yeah, tell me if you might, how did you gain that forward-looking perspective, John? How did, how did you, how were you able to set your sights on what's in front of you and not what's behind you? I imagine that's many things over the years, but, but is there any one thing you would point to, to say, this is what's helped me cultivate this particular perspective? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's just sort of personality type or, um, I, I, I have often though, just, I, I can picture, um, so many people are just so they're, they're, you know, they're like, Oh yeah. Do you remember two Thanksgivings ago when we went to so-and-so? And so they sort of live in the past a little bit, you know, the, 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 their past is very vivid to them. Um, um, my future is very vivid to me and the present. I, I try, I, I work really hard to pull myself to, to stay in the present because, um, um, so it's just, no, I, I don't, it's not something I consciously worked on. It's just sort of, um, for better and for worse, a, a personality tree that I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm a visionary. I, I see, uh, I see down the road or, or around the corner. I help congregations envision what God might be calling them to do and be in three to five years. Um, the downside of that is, you know, I don't pause and celebrate as often as I need to. I don't, I don't say, Hey, way to go team. That was a really good X, Y, Z. Sure. Because I was, I'm like, next, <laughs> you know, and, and that burns people out. That's not good. It burns me out. So I have to consciously remind myself to slow down, reflect a little bit, give thanks, be, be grateful, write thank you notes, celebrate accomplishments and not just always charge the next hill. Yeah. Well, as your friend and your colleague, it's one of the things that is such a gift about being in your presence is that you are present where you are present. And, and it's, um, it is a rare quality I find uh, in folks. And so I, it is one of the many things I enjoy about spending time with you. Um, so I'm glad you're able to reflect on that. One more question for you. I'm, I'm wondering if you had any time to look at this Coventry litany of reconciliation, um, if you have any familiarity with it and just any reflections or anything that stood out to you that you might wanna share with us? Um, I did look at that and Coventry, of course, you know, um, that's a community of reconciliation. I mean, they, they build themselves around that. Um, um, and I, um, I, I, do, I think I would, I would bring it full circle to what I said, you know, that quote earlier about unforgiveness is, 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 is drinking poison and hope, hoping the other person gets sick. You know, and so I think they get that. I think that prayer gets that, which is um, that it's that it's it's in our own health, it's in our own mental health interests to um, to um, engage in loving behaviors. Um, but um, I read it when you first forwarded it to me. Um, I wish you I wish you could screen share it with me right now because it'll trigger a lot. Of, can you do that? I can. Um, it'll trigger some other. Um, thoughts that I had about it at the time. Here we go. Boy, that was fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it reminds, it's of course, it's reminiscent of what we're coming up on with Ash Wednesday too, isn't it? You know, right. absolutely. All, all, the litany of um, um, penitence. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, um, it nails it. Um, what I, um, 
What I sometimes think about, and this is a little bit of a, um, I might be a little bit of an outlier here, but um, the longer I'm in ministry, the long, the more I'm convinced that um, we know all too well our sin and our brokenness. Um, yes, there are people who are in denial about it um, and really do need to, to stand face to face with indifference to the plight to uh, um, we, we, there are there are many people who do sort of blithely unaware of pride and lust and indifference and envy and so on. Um, but I suspect that most people are all too well and all too much aware of their sin and brokenness. And what they don't know is grace. What they don't know is that they have been forgiven, that, that, that their sins have been put away. Um, I don't think very many Episcopalians in particular um, have ever read Romans chapter five, mm. you know, well enough to know that, um, that we have been made right with God. We are justified with God, that our sins have been forgiven, that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more or to make God love us less. So um, I think that if people lived into the fact that as far as God is concerned, we already are forgiven and we need to live into that forgiveness in gratitude. And, and that'll give us away from, you know, fancy word Pelagianism. That'll give us away from works righteousness, right? That'll get us away from thinking that we have to earn our way into heaven somehow. Yeah. And, if, and, if, and if we only feel guilty enough or shameful enough, um, then, then we'll impress God with how contrite we are. God's, you know, I think God's bored with our sins. God's seen it all. You know, it's like, no, it's all been, it's, you have a clean record. It's all been, you, you are forgiven. Yeah. And so what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that forgiveness? Are you going to, are you going to live a life of gratitude? Um, or, um, or, and so the operative to me, the operative scripture story is that we are the person who has been forgiven the great amount and then who goes out and grabs someone by the throat. You know, we've been forgiven $10 million. And then we run into someone who owes us $120 and say, pay me back. That's us, you know? So I think what we need to do is, is live into the abundance of our forgiveness. You know, we are, we are, we are multimillionaires in grace. And, you know, and, and if we lived into that more, we would walk out and see that person who owes us 120 bucks, who's wronged us 120 times and say, <laughs> oh, what's that? You know, it's just like, oh, God, you know, it's like, dude, I'm, what's that? Forget about it. I've got so much to spare. I've got so much grace and forgiveness and to spare. Why would I hold that against you when, I, when I've just been forgiven 10 million? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the posture. Mercy and gratitude. I can think of no better place to end, John. <laughs> um, I sure do miss having you just on the road, but it is so lovely to reconnect with you this afternoon. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, and thank you for sharing these stories with us. I'm really grateful. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I, uh, I, and congratulations again to the people of St. Michael's for landing one of the fabulous ones. And don't, and don't edit that out out of some weird <laughs> sense of false modesty. You know me too well.
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class. Father, forgive. The covetous desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. The greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste the earth. Father, forgive. Our envy of the welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference to the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless, the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonors the bodies of men, women, and children. Father, forgive. The pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Oh